The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Friday, July 28th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And I don't normally do this, but I am going to yodel. No, I am not. I'm going to share an anecdote, something that happened to me yesterday. I was watching basketball at the West 4th Street Courts, a great basketball court, in fact, a terrible basketball court, but a famous one where crowds come to gather and they have Division I caliber players playing in the summer league. And as I was watching, waiting for, I had a 7 p.m. interview and I was uh, there around 6.20, so I was killing some time. There was a kid who was selling cookies, Oreo cookies, out of a box. He wasn't actively doing it. The cookies were on the ground. But you know these kids, if you live in New York, they come on the subways. They say, can you buy some of my cookies to send my basketball team to the Poconos? And then the basketball teams never seem to go to the Poconos. The same kids are there the next day on the subway selling their Oreos. But it put down his box of, I don't know, 12 packs of Oreo cookies on the ground. And some guy who wasn't watching the basketball game, just a worker trying to get to the subway there on West 4th, walked past and tripped over the box of cookies, scattered the cookies a little bit. And the guy stumbled, the kid and the guy looked at each other. I'll describe the guy. He was wearing all black. He was clad in all black. And I thought he was a worker, maybe a knowledge worker, someone who worked in the arts somewhere in the village. But I got to look at him closer and I began to question that. He seemed a little disheveled, but he was spindly. He was quite thin. The kid was between 14 and 16. I mean, that's how old my kids are. He seemed right about in that age. And I can't quite remember, or I didn't quite catch it, but someone took umbrage at someone else. And I guess they both had a right, although the cookies being on the ground, I think are somewhat worse. But if the guy trips over them and the kid sees his cookies scatter, the guy does nothing and didn't step on the cookies. But there were some words exchanged. Literally, it seemed like words were exchanged. Hey, what you do? Those are my cookies. And then it escalated. Motherfucker, why'd you do that? No, fuck you. Why were your cookies there? And then the kid came at the guy and he put his hands on him. And a lot of people who are watching the basketball game now turned around to watch this fight that was brewing. And I could not believe it because this was such a stupid thing. And these people were locked. They were uh, locked where the kid was grabbing the older guy, the uh, skinny, maybe knowledge workery, black clad older guy by the lapels. And the guy was grabbing back and hands were clenched. Fists were about to be thrown. And I didn't want to see it happen. I was, if not the closest, I mean, there was a crowd of people. So three or four people were nearby and 20 or 30 people were looking and everyone was just looking. They were waiting to see what happened. But I was looking at the kid and I was seeing if he was reaching for anything, anything uh, on him, you know, a weapon, a knife could be, I doubt he ever gun. And he wasn't. It looks like he was ready to throw fists. So I had a split second to say, do I let this happen or do I not? And I decided to act. So what I did was I got in between them or I used my hands. And now I should say both were smaller than me. One was a kid. One was, have I used the word spindly too much? If this guy's hearing it, uh, you know, he was slight. He was, uh, he was thin. He uh, was a bit of an ectomorph. I separated them. I put my hands on each of their shoulders and 
I had a tactic, which was I thought if I shocked them, they might stop. And then if I acted, shocked and acted and took away the possibility of action from each of them, they might just react to what I was doing. And I also sensed that neither of them really wanted to throw punches or else they would have already. Um, they were, you know, clenched up for a couple, couple seconds, but enough to see that throwing a punch wasn't the first inclination. So I yelled at the guy, the uh, the white spindly guy, black clad, get out of here. You get the hell out of here. You go down in that subway. And he did. He just kind of ran away. I'm glad he did that. He used the opportunity to divorce himself from what was going on. He didn't want to get punched. It's not worth it. The kid, I thought, might be a little more uh, aggressive. And I turned to him and said, that guy's an asshole. You can't let that guy get to you. Here's your, and I started picking up the cookies and I gave it to him. And I was wondering if the kid was going to be mad at me, going to go after the guy. And he just, he didn't thank me or anything, but he just like in a huff walked in the other direction. All right. So I told this, and by the way, None of the people who were watching, they were they just turned around and went to their actually better entertainment, which is the very good basketball game. A homeless man gave me the thumbs up. And not just like garden variety homeless. This was like medieval pauper homeless guy. So that guy liked it. So I told this story to a few other people and an interesting phenomenon happened. When I told this story to my mom and dad, they each said, oh, Michael, they call me Michael. Don't do that. We worry about you. I don't like it. It's not safe. When I told it to my wife, she said that times 10, I don't like when you do this, you get involved in these things, it's not safe, you always think everything is safe. That's true. I have a pretty poor uh, perception of risk, I would say. I don't put myself in, well, maybe I do. Maybe she would say I do. I don't have her perception of risk. Since I don't have that anxiety gene, maybe I put myself in overly risky situations. But I really tried to make the assessment and act on it accordingly. But when I told this story to people who didn't know me at all, or certainly didn't love me, they all said, well, that was a good thing you did. I was there to interview a comedian named uh, Mike Yard for uh, a special uh, Mike Interviews Comedians program that we're working on. And when I told him, and when I told Nicole, uh, who was engineering the session about this, they both essentially thought I had done a good thing. You know, they didn't say that he'd call me heroic or anything, but you could tell that they thought that my intervention was good. And here's why. And this, by the way, held for people who loved me, said I worried about you, and people who knew me or even knew me well thought that I did a good thing. And I got to thinking about it. And my analysis is, it is because to people who didn't know me, like this comedian who I just met that day, or to people who knew me slightly, I, in that scenario, am part of society, society writ large, as are the two would-be combatants. We are just three atoms within this nucleus called society bouncing around. And what they want from society are, you know, things like calm and a lack of violence. And I affected that. So that was good. I was a part of society and society overall had calmed down a little bit thanks to my interventions. My loved ones were not judging society or the effect on society. They were judging the effect on me, the person extremely important to their life. It's a little bit like the collective action problem. Everyone is incentivized not to be the first to act because they they have so much personally to lose, even if society as a whole would benefit from someone acting. When we talk about the bystander effect, we usually bemoan it, or that's a pejorative, because people did nothing. People just stood by 
and let a bad thing happen. But each individual is for themselves saying, well, I'm not acting selfishly here. I'm acting selflessly. Only the other selves who I am acting for, not the two people in front of me, or maybe not necessarily the crime that's going down. The people I'm acting for are my loved ones, the people who depend on me, the people who depend on, I don't know, my love, my income, all that stuff. It's just a different calculation. It cuts against the standard narrative of the bystander effect, which is we just got to get good people to stand up. Standing up comes at a cost sometimes. It could, potentially. And then when I told this to Joel and Corey, my producer, two people who I wouldn't say love me, but certainly I'm going to say like me, or at least, uh, you know, their livings are dependent on me. They thought I did a good thing. But when I told them, Joel said, well, you know, it's just like police. What do you mean? That the police are so worried about getting hurt and their families are so worried about getting hurt, sometimes this results in aggressiveness. Yeah, exactly. It's a noted phenomenon. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast where Ice Cube and Bill Maher were talking about this exactly. The basic um, organization is the same. It's not going to change. You know, it's there to win and and not to lose. You mean to get home safe? To get home safe no matter See, what. That's, that's always been one of my big problems with the police, which mm-hmm. they don't appreciate me saying, but I have. They have a bad attitude about um, how dangerous their job is and how much the priority is them not being in danger. If you want to never be in danger, be a plumber. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to be snaking a drain and you smell like shit. And so the argument against the police who overvalue their own safety as opposed to the safety of the community, the standard reaction or the reaction that we heard from Mar and Cube, let us say Mar and Cube, was that's your job. That's the job you signed up for. But it's weird or odd because in so many other contexts, and I wouldn't say Bill Maher says this, but so many people rebut the idea that if it's your job, you have to do the job to the utmost. The endorsement of quiet quitting by many people falls into this phenomenon I'm talking about. Or just the idea of you used to go into a CVS and you know the guy there is minimum wage worker and you ask for something and he's entirely uninterested and vaguely says, yeah, maybe the uh, Flintstones chewables are in row eight. And 20 years ago, I think everyone would say, well, my God, this guy has no pride in his job. And now there's a large cadre of people who would say, look, he's minimum wage. What can you expect? What I'm saying is the kind of people who use the terms like late capitalism, who say things like, you're not your work. Your work isn't you. You can't let your job become your whole life. When it comes to the cops, they say, that's what you signed up for. Can't let your job become your whole life. Well, what if your job literally costs you your life? I would say that would be an example of your job becoming your whole life. Now, I'm not saying Ice Cube or those of his mindset or Bill Maher actually uh, subscribe to the yay, let's go quiet quitting idea. But there are two cross currents of society and they're rarely applied to each other. So to intervene, to not intervene, what you owe your family, what you owe society, the risks, the judgment that we have about bystanders, fighting, violence, and the subway, it's all there in today's interview. It will be a full show interview, although wasn't this very spiel-like? It is with Leon Nafok, who is, I think, the best storytelling podcaster out there, the best narrative podcaster that exists. He's also a friend of mine, which is good because in the second part of the interview, it gets a little, if not contentious, but I do criticize Leon's thesis or some of the thesis of 
his new fiasco series. But I just want to point out what a typically excellent, detail-driven, well-reported bevy of first-person voices as characteristic of anything that Leon Nafak does. That is the correct and most important headline description for Fiasco Vigilante. But then you'll hear a little bit of the pushback portion of the show in part two. Leon Nafak up next. Leon Nafok is the host and producer of, well, first it was Slow Burn, now it's the Fiasco series. The new Fiasco is Vigilante. It's about the subway vigilante. Do I need to add other clarifications? Maybe these days I do. Which subway vigilante? If you were around in the 80s, that's one of those phrases like Panamanian strongman that immediately attaches itself to one notorious figure. In this case, Bernhard Getz, he gunned down four black youths, toughs in the parlance of the tabloids of the day. And Leon goes back and excavates what we were thinking about that and what it means today. Leon, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. I do think most of my listeners will know that Bernard Getz was on a subway in 1984 and four young black teenagers came up to him. Maybe they asked him for money, maybe something more and bang, 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 bang. He shot them. What else do we need to know to understand the story? So one thing that really, I think, shaped uh, the aftermath is that Getz, after shooting these guys ran into the tunnel and disappeared for about a week, a little more than a week, and eventually turned himself in. But in the meantime, uh, this faceless, nameless figure who had stood up to his would-be assailants became uh, a folk hero before even anyone knew who he was, uh, in New York in particular, among people who were sick and tired of crime. So they saw they saw this guy, whoever he was, as... Uh, a vigilante who stood up and decided to fight back uh, against these people who were making the subway dangerous and whom everyone, you know, recognized from their own experience of riding the subway and being scared. And so they saw Getz as someone who had done the right thing, uh, again, before they even knew that his name was Bernie Getz. And so by the time he did turn himself in, People were people were were cheering for him. You know that the, the NYPD put out a, a put up a tip line um, as they were searching for him um, in hopes of getting some intel about where he might be and who he might be. And instead, what they got was dozens and dozens, or even hundreds, of phone calls from people saying this guy did the right thing, and there should be more like him. Yes. So I remember I was uh, a New Yorker about. 12 uh, when that went down. And I remember his picture or the artist sketch plastered all over the tabloids. And I remember it a little, or I remembered it a little bit differently in that in the interregnum between the shooting and him turning himself in, I just remembered that there was much more ambivalence. I mean, there's a guy with a gun who's out there and is he a crazy man? And there was a lot of fear of crime, but there was also a lot of question about, you know, how uh, proper or how much we should celebrate the vigilantism. However, I did some research for this and I tried to square my own memories with what the public was thinking. And yeah, they pub- they polled on it. And in January of 1985, so just a few weeks after the shootings, the public was more supportive than not of Getz. And they even broke this poll down, which ran in the New York Times racially. 
among blacks, 45 were supportive of Getz, 33 were not. Among whites, 56 were supportive, 26 were not. And among Hispanics, 48% were supportive and 26% were not. So even though this was a racially uh, charged shooting and Al Sharpton first began in some circles to be known because of this, not only was he mostly supported, he was mostly supported by everyone for a short period of time. Yeah, I think you, you you watch, you know, some of the early like Vox Pop interviews, man on the street interviews that a lot of the networks were doing. And you see a very diverse range of people uh, expressing, if not sympathy for him, at least understanding of where he was coming from. You, you hear a lot of people say, well, I don't think there should be guns on the subway. I don't think we should all be carrying uh, in self-defense. And I don't like that there was someone on the, on the subway with a gun. Um, but I get why he reacted the way he did if he thought he was about to be robbed. Um, and you you hear that from from white people, you hear that from black people, and uh, it didn't really break down along racial lines until a little bit later when it became less clear that he was acting in self-defense and it started to seem like perhaps he acted out of, if not racial animus, then at least a general rage and that he was not in immediate danger when he made this decision. Right. And you spend in the series a lot of time talking about how he was the victim of a tabloid war, one way to look at it, or the tabloids, the Daily News and the New York Post, which were really riding high, were the beneficiaries of this Bernie Getz story. And they shaped the public perception because, and I definitely remember this, these four toughs, that was uh, the word in the Daily News, robbed him at screwdriver point. They That's right. menaced him with sharpened screwdrivers. And that is the telling detail that can't help but take hold in people's minds. And that was entirely incorrect, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, the first reporting, presumably based on NYPD sources, was that these guys had screwdrivers on them that they had sharpened specifically to make them into weapons. Turned out that according to witnesses on the subway car, that the supposedly sharpened screwdrivers were never brandished during this interaction. They, they, it was true that two, I believe, of the four boys had screwdrivers in their pockets. Uh, but in fact, they were there because uh, the boys were planning to go to an arcade where they would bust open the machines with screwdrivers, which was a very common hustle at the time. Not handyman, not entirely unnefarious sure, intent. yes. But you're right that the image of four guys with sharpened screwdrivers menacing this defenseless man stuck in people's minds. And even when it was established uh, unequivocally that it never happened, it didn't really matter because the image was uh, that powerful. Yes. But what turned the public around to some degree was Bernie Getz, his own words, the revelations of uh, what he actually said in interviews, which you get into and how they use that in his court case. But um, what did the public, and I have some polling on this too, eventually they began to see him as uh, rather creepy, did they not? Yeah. I mean, he turned out to be kind of an eccentric, uh, paranoid and angry guy who was less easy to relate to than he had been when no one knew who he was, uh, when everyone could just project onto him whatever they wanted to. And as you say, there were interviews that Getz gave uh, immediately upon turning himself in. Uh, he ended up in New Hampshire and walked into a police station and said, I'm the subway vigilante. <laughs> um, and he sat for hours and hours of questioning uh, first uh, by New Hampshire police and then by New York City authorities who traveled to to meet him there. 
And they recorded this interview, you know, on video. Uh, you can see it on YouTube. Um, not all of it, but we, we we got the original recordings in which Getz comes across as unhinged and unstable. Also, importantly, completely unrepentant. I sh- I, look, if I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. The old, my problem was I ran out of bullets, and I was gonna I was gonna gouge one of the guys' eyes out with my keys afterwards. You you, oh, you 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 can't understand this. I know you can't understand this. That's fine. The reason the only reason I didn't do it is because he had changed his look. One miraculous aspect of the story is that all four teenagers whom he shot survived, despite being shot at close range. Uh, they were gravely injured, especially one of them, Daryl Kaby, but they all survived. And it becomes clear also in the interview that what they were about to do to him was very much in his mind. Uh, by all accounts, uh, they did ask him for money. They asked him for $5. Uh, but the way Getz interpreted the situation was these guys were going to play with him. They were going to have a little fun with him. Um, now, it's important to say Getz had been robbed Um or rather, he'd been the victim of an attempted robbery uh, about three years before this happened in 1981, uh, also on the subway platform. And that time he was injured and he uh, ended up giving a statement to the police and was very angry that um, his assailants uh, had gotten away with it, basically. And so I think, you know, as I understand the story, that incident spurred him to go and buy a gun. He didn't have a license to buy a gun. It was very hard to get a legal gun in New York. He went to Florida. He tried. He pursued That's it. Right. He tried to get a pistol license. He appealed. He said he carried money. It didn't matter. This was uh, New York gun laws, which are still pretty consistently tough, although the Bruin ruling may, may correct that. But he comes back to New York. And in fact, this he, become, he makes a habit of this, bringing back to New York and telling investigators that he uh, sells them to people, but always at cost because part of his ideology is that we should all be armed. Correct. Yeah. And so I think people people heard uh, excerpts from that interview and were like, I don't know about this guy. We thought he was a reasonable man who did what he had to do, perhaps reluctantly, perhaps, you know, with no malice in his heart. Um, he was just protecting himself. But then in this interview, he reveals himself, I think, to be pretty bloodthirsty. And that sat less well with people. If you take a rat and you corner it, and you, let's say just one time, you start poking it with, with red hot needles and the, reactor, and the rat doesn't know how to react and you do this, okay? And you wind up doing it again, or you know, perhaps again. And if once in a while, a rat turns viciously on you and just becomes a total vicious killer, which is, which is really what I was, then don't, don't go passing statements of morality saying, ah, well, this was uh, not warranted, or this was, uh, you should have uh, done this, or all you had to do was show the gun. I've been in situations where I've shown the gun. What happened here is I snapped. And we'll be back in a minute or two with more of Leon and my discussion about safety and how much safety can we demand, expect, and when it's not delivered, how far can society go? So, so much, and you mentioned this in the beginning, and here's where I want to, I think, disagree with you, but I want to make sure that I'm not misinterpreting what your thesis was. You do talk about reasonableness. You talk about the fear of crime. There are two bookended statements by you where you set up the series in episode one, talking about 
the perceptions of crime at the time. And then in episode six, you land on this again. It's one of the last thoughts of the series. What I keep thinking about is this idea of reasonableness. Is it reasonable to be scared of crime? Is it reasonable to go out and get a gun to protect yourself? Is it reasonable to shoot someone who approaches you and asks you for money? Is it reasonable to also shoot the three people he's hanging out with? Does it make it more or less reasonable if they're all white as opposed to black? To me, it all comes back to fear and the degree to which it determines how we live our lives, what laws we support, and what politicians we vote for. A society with a high crime rate may seem weak or broken somehow, and I get that. But a society that tolerates no crime whatsoever might be even scarier. Because whether we like it or not, there is a relationship between the level of freedom we all want for ourselves and some amount of social disorder. And there's no clear sign that tells you, hey, you found it. Your world is both free enough and safe enough. So I might understand that you think that there is no way to determine that society is so unsafe that you can always say that, well, it's reasonable to worry about being robbed or being murdered. I think this is one of the last things you hear in the series for a reason, because when you step back and ask yourself, what does this all mean? You have to reckon with the fact that people really were scared of crime in the 1980s in New York and, and in other big cities. It really was true that people heard about other people getting hurt. They had family members who had been mugged. It really was less safe than it is now. And you look at the numbers and like, for example, just on the subway system in 1984, there were 12,000 reported felonies committed. And that included 5,000 robberies, 750 assaults, seven murders. That sounds like a lot. And it is a lot. <laughs> but when you consider how many people rode the subway every day and you do the math, it turns out that an individual rider's chance of being attacked or robbed on any given subway ride was actually tiny. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that none of us should be scared because, you know, the numbers are are objectively small and the likelihood that you're actually going to get hurt even during a high, an, era, an era of high crime is really small. That means that you're not allowed to be scared. I don't think so. I think, I think, it's, I think it's unfair to expect people to not uh, draw conclusions about their own safety based on uh, the fact that crime is happening around them. Uh, however, I think, um, and I think it's hard to take comfort in, you know, the math that says, well, actually your chances of getting, uh, you know, hurt on the subway on any given subway ride is 0.001% or whatever. I think it's hard for us as individuals to, to, to sort of be quote unquote rational about that. And I think the hard part, if you accept that it's, that it's impossible to expect people to be quote unquote rational is like, well, how do you rein in fear if the outcome of indulging that fear is laws that make us less free. And I think there, there is, I think it's illustrated by this story that there is a trade-off between freedom and security, right? Like there is absolutely too much, too much law enforcement. And that, 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 that is possible that there can be too much law enforcement, even if it means zero crime. I remember reading uh, an article in N plus one years and years ago, uh, sort of the first time I was aware of mass incarceration as a problem. And the headline of the piece, uh, which was arguing for, uh, you know, dismantling the mass incarceration state 
was raise the crime rate, uh, a cheeky headline, but the truth embedded in it was like, we should be tolerant of some amount of crime because it's more important that our society is free and that we don't punish people uh, so gratuitously and so uh, so punitively that we don't recognize the country we live in. And so uh, I think that all of us have some duty to calibrate our level of fear. I think that's where I landed personally, is like we, we, do, we, we, we can't just trust our fear because while that fear may be uh, involuntary, while that fear may be um, instinctual, um, nothing good happens when that is the thing that decides all of our policy preferences and our sense of what we all owe one another in the public sphere. I totally agree with you if it was 2017, when New York murders were under 300. But we're talking about, first of all, with the beginning, the bulk of the series is about Bernhard Goetz and the mid-80s. Starting in 1975, there were 2,000 murders a year in New York City. And we went 10 years where there were 2,000 or 1,900 murders a year. I think one year there was 1,800 and something murders for over a decade. So by 1985, the bodies had piled up that there were literally tens of thousands of people no longer living because they were murdered in New York City. And then when you take the subway stats, yes, for anyone ride, it's very small that you'll get attacked on the subway, but people take the subway to and from work and sometimes somewhere else. And it's really likely that you or someone you know is going to get attacked on the subway, uh, one of the scarier places. That New York Times poll that I cited in the beginning about Attitudes towards Getz said that last year they did a poll of New Yorkers and they found that 28% either they or a family member have been a crime victim in the city. And so over a couple of years, it seemed, it would seem to people that they were attacked or someone they were very close to were, was attacked. Now you got to put that, I say, the fear of crime was very rational when Bernie Getz was riding the subway. It was a dangerous, dangerous city. At the same time, Bernie Getz was a bit of a nut. And the reason, and him shooting these kids was entirely unwarranted and also driven by racial animus. It could all be true. But as a test case for we can't let fear drive us, maybe in 2017 we couldn't, probably in 2023 it's wrong to let fear drive us. But there's such a thing as rational fear. And when you let society break down to that degree, the consequence is that vigilantism will happen and that vigilantism will be applauded. So what I'm saying is I listened to your to the show and I said, okay, it seems like Leon is hitting this point, this, well, even if there is crime, you got to worry about the consequences of crime. Yes, you can have that conversation when crime is at 2017 levels. When crime was at 1975 to 1985 levels, it was actually not saying that all the policing was right or there wasn't some you know horrible racist policing or that everyone who was accused of a crime, look at the Central Park Jarger case, was innocent, but actually there needed to be more law enforcement. The prison rates then were around 200 per 100,000 people. Now they're around 500. And somewhere in between those two rates seems appropriate. And 200 certainly seemed appropriate or even inadequate to the uh, severity of the problem at the time. But that's what I thought Leon was saying. And I got to say, I disagreed with it. You thought I was saying that people were wrong to be afraid. 
Yeah, you were saying mostly it's uh, the perception of crime that was driving this rather than the facts. And I think the facts of daily existence in New York were driving this. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I would disagree that we tilted it as far in that direction as you're saying. I think we at least tried to take seriously the reality of crime in New York. I think absolutely acknowledged that the city was unsafe uh, and that even if... You know, one, one thing that was funny that happened over and over again in our reporting was that we would talk to someone and we would say, so like, what, you know, how do you remember this era? Like, what, what was it like for you? Did you walk out of your house scared every time you, 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 you know, walked out of your front door after dark? And to a man, everyone said, well, I wasn't, but everybody else was. <laughs> and so that mm-hmm. maybe is just- Yeah, I remember that part in the series, but I, but also there were parts that contradicted it. Like when you talk to- uh Carl Canty's, Troy Canty's uncle, one of one of the shooting victims. And he just laid out the vibe of the neighborhood he grew up in. And it was just unbelievably dangerous. And old ladies couldn't pick up their social security check. And he had to fight his way to the store. So even I, at, the, at one point, you're like, so many people said uh, it wasn't, I wasn't in danger, but he literally was saying how much in danger he was. You're quite right to note that. But it, I would say Carl Canty was living in the South Bronx, a very poor and segregated part of New York that was very different from the New York that a lot of the people who were most scared of crime lived in. Like, mm-hmm. it's always been true. But where did these kids take the train from? From the South Bronx. Yeah, it's all connected. People from the South Bronx can commit crimes and did commit crimes in Union Square. Yeah, but I think the fact that Carl Canty, Troy Troy Canty's brother, was... Uh, n- was experiencing this high crime and was scared of it and had to, you know, construct his life accordingly and carry weapons and and commit crimes himself. Uh, That doesn't tell me much about how afraid people living in Park Slope or Midtown or Tribeca or whatever. I don't, I'm now using uh, contemporary neighborhoods as examples, but crime, crime gets concentrated, right? In parts of the city. And Yes. The people who are most afraid and most influential in pu- policy setting are not usually from the high crime areas. And so to me, it's like a little bit rich, right, for people who aren't really in danger to be calling for more punitive policies uh, when the brunt of those policies will land on the people who are being who are mo- most, most likely to be victims of crime. And that's why a lot of people in those neighborhoods were supportive of more punitive policies, right? Yeah, in in um, Carl Canty's neighborhood, but you know, in 2023, we pull the neighborhoods like Tribeca and Park Slope as all oh, these safe white neighborhoods. They were unbelievably unsafe then. Park Slope was quite unsafe. I'm sure you've talked to many people, and you just marvel at the fact that in the uh, 70s and 80s and 90s, you couldn't walk from this. You could only walk one direction from the subway because the other direction was just too dangerous. My point is that. Things really, really were unsafe back then. It doesn't excuse Bernard Getz. And if I were on a jury, I, I, I would like to think that I would vote to convict Bernard Getz. But societally, if you're going to talk about incarceration rates, uh, how do you solve or correct or ameliorate Carl Canty's situation without some increase in incarceration rates? No, you don't. I don't think you do. I mean, look, I've, I used to cover criminal justice at Slate, and I wrote a bunch of pieces where I highlighted the uh, sort of more, mo- what I would call more moderate uh, voices in this debate who were saying all of these progressive 
uh, anti-incarceration policies ignore the fact that crime is a real scourge in our society and that the people who are often the victims of crime are themselves poor, vulnerable, et cetera. Uh, you can make the same point that I made from the other direction, which is, yeah, it's pretty rich for people in white, safe Park Slope in Tribeca to be calling for the emptying out of our prisons when they're not going to be the ones who pay the cost for that. I completely agree with that. So then that brings us up to uh, Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny, and the crime rates now are so much lower, you know, 500 murders a year instead of 2,000. But they are higher than the 300 murders I talked about. And I think in this case, and we're not just talking about murder, we're talking about homelessness, which seems to very much have exploded as a problem, is talking about the perception of crime and the fact that in 2023 or 2022, crime actually wasn't as nearly as high as it was in uh, 1985. Is that the most important thing in trying to determine whether Daniel Penny acted justly or not justly? Well, look, I would say that that incident and the Getz incident, as you say, aren't perhaps the best indicators of what our policy should be about incarceration or how we treat people with repeated arrest records. Uh, I think I'm pretty comfortable saying that in both those cases, taking out your gun or putting someone in a chokehold was not necessary. But I think what I'm also comfortable saying is that the people cheering these people these these acts on are act like the people who who rallied around Getz and who people who call Daniel Penny the Subway Samaritan in a reference I think to the Subway Vigilante at least implicitly I think that attitude that sense that not only are these guys acting rationally or, or acting reasonably or, or, or defensively, but rather that they're doing something affirmatively good for our society by reacting uh, with such violence. I think that's the attitude you get from an overactive sense of fear. I think in the show, we don't make a policy prescription about how high the incarceration rate should be uh, or how we should deal with criminals. I think what we're talking about is what accounts for this explosion of support that he got, this explosion of affection that he inspired in people, uh, which is, I'm comfortable saying, is ugly. Like, I, 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 I think it doesn't matter what you think about how uh, our police department and our DA's office deals with crime. People can disagree on that. But I think the enthusiasm with which people have embraced these so-called vigilantes is disturbing. And it uh, comes from, I think, an indulgence in the fantasy that we should all be 100% safe all the time. Yeah. I mean, 100% safe is totally- A high bar. Um, yeah. 100% safe is not going to happen. But then there's the question, the gray area of how much safety or how much uh, unsafety should we be forced to countenance? And of course, the people are projecting whatever because they don't know what the actual level of safety or threat or threat was when Jordan Neely was tragically uh, strangled to death. And I'll also add that, sure, there are a lot of conservatives who have raised money for him based on um, not, the, not the kindest impulses. However, I also think that it's not just perception. 
I think that there's a bit of reality and things turning from tolerable to intolerable that informs perhaps the reasonable person who says, look, I don't think uh, anyone killing anyone on a subway is a good thing, but I can understand. And I have seen with my own eyes how scary and unsafe it is. And for this guy to perhaps be railroaded without taking that into account, that would be an injustice. Maybe that's the best way to frame a reasonable defense of Penny that doesn't turn him into a hero or a Samaritan. Yeah. And I think what I would say is that it's hard to disentangle the bloodthirsty, vengeful, embrace of a Daniel Penny or a Bernie Getz from the forces that lead us to what you would call pro-carceral solutions to the crime problem. Like, that doesn't mean pro-carceral solutions to the crime problem are wrong, but I'm not surprised that a lot of people see those things as coming from the same spot in people's hearts or minds. Like, and you, you and I can sit here and agree that, of course, crime was a serious issue that needed a solution in 1984 or in 2023. Uh, and we can do that without embracing someone whose solution to that problem is attempted murder. Right. But I guess my point, absolutely. But my point is we can also do that and acknowledge that it's not a drive for an unrealistic, a hundred percent safe. No one will ever, no threat of danger will ever flit across my consciousness. This unreasonable uh, mindset that is driving a defense of say Penny or Getz. There's something real there and something logical there where someone, there's a lot of projection to, but someone could say, you know, things really are unsafe. And here was a guy, let us let the courts and the law decide whether it was right or wrong. But at least on initial impulse, he did something to address an actual situation that doesn't make him bloodthirsty, me bloodthirsty, or anyone who, you know, has some sympathy for his plight bloodthirsty. Yeah. I, you think I guess. So? I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you disagree? It's hard. It's hard for me. I mean, it's hard for me to identify with either of them, uh, even if I'm even if I'm prepared, which I am, to accept that crime was out of control in 1984 and arguably has gotten, you know, out of control again. Uh, I don't totally buy. No, the, I don't think it has. I don't, I don't buy the <laughs> argument that 500 is the same as 2000 just because it's, oh, yeah, I'm not just cause it's 200 more than yeah. what it used to be. But yeah. uh, to me, like, and maybe this is the this is the danger of trying to wring, you know, policy prescriptions and universal truths out of these edge cases, you know, where, where you do have extraordinary events occurring where people make extreme decisions. Um, but my willingness to sit here and say, like, I'm not trying to free every prisoner and destroy our prisons so that everyone can be free. That is not my position at all. And it never has been. And I don't think that means that I have to hand it to him, <laughs> as they say, <laughs> that I got to hand it to Bernie Getz or, or Daniel Penny and, and, and see where they're coming from. Leon Nafak is the host of the Fiasco podcast series. The latest one is called Fiasco Vigilante, and it's out on Audible now. Thank you, Leon. Thanks, Mike. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Corey Warrell. Senior producer is Joel Patterson, two guys who, you know, like that I intervene, but I, I suppose don't love me. You know who does? Michelle Pasca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. It is a purely mercenary 
relationship. There is no love there. Money exchanges hands. I believe we act with the utmost of professional courtesy and decorum, but it is not a love relationship between me and Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.